Hello and welcome to the Spine and Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovis. And my name is Dr. Carvelis. And today we are going to be talking about uh, non-specific low back pain. I'm saying that with quotation marks uh, as we're starting. Um, or kind of a, maybe an easier way uh, to talk about this is back pain that's presenting to a primary care provider, um, maybe to an urgent care or to an emergency department, uh, occupational health. Um, essentially things that are presenting to uh, first-line uh, healthcare prof- professionals, um, not necessarily something that makes it to uh, us right away, right? These are kind of the initial time that people are presenting, they're having some uh, discomfort or ailments uh, affecting uh, their low backs. Um, this is a kind of different topic and a different way of thinking about things than we have discussed things so far. I mean, m- most of what we have discussed to this point has been things that are presenting to us as uh, specialists by the time it's they people have made it through you know the first few steps that primary care takes them through and usually including physical therapy um, plus or minus uh, some medications or um, in, you know, imaging studies uh, and so this is kind of as people are first coming in uh, and kind of seeing what exactly is the cause of a lot of this low back pain um, dr. Carvelis and I were discussing earlier uh, that he had just read a paper out of the Lancet uh, that stated that, uh, what was it, I believe 90% of uh, back pain that presented to a primary care was uh, diagnosed as nonspecific low back pain? Yeah, uh, that, you know, it's always a, it's always a difficult challenge for us when a patient does come in with back pain to make the most accurate diagnosis possible. And we're always uh, striving to optimize that uh, diagnostic process. Along those lines, uh, we I was looking at a article from 2016 uh, published in the Lancet, and they cited a few different, uh, multiple different studies, but one of them um, uh, did document the incidence of nonspecific low back pain in regards to patients presenting to the primary care setting to be as high as 90%. And that's uh, fairly consistent as you look through the literature, anywhere from 80 to 90%, uh, and actually even higher than that uh, from other studies. And didn't you mention an Australian study that uh, presented only 1% of uh, people that presented with back pain uh, actually had an underlying diagnosis? Yeah, exactly. And so that was an Australian study that looked over, looked at over uh, 1,100 patients with low back pain presenting to primary care office. And in that study, what they found was that only uh, 1% of those patients had a specific cause for their uh, low back pain found in that specific study. So these studies, I find a little bit interesting, right? I mean, obviously, you know, we have a different perspective. We are not seeing all comers with low back pain um, that are presenting in a primary care setting or to an urgent care or emergency department. Um, patients have usually kind of been through some things, uh, some workup before they make it to see us. Um, but those numbers to me seem quite high. I don't know. Is that, do you feel that that, that sounds awfully, awfully high for, for what you kind of the way that you think about it? So I would say a part of me wants to very strongly say yes. And uh, because, you know, that obviously in terms of us, uh, myself and Dr. Hovez being interventional uh, uh, pain doctors as our primary specialty, we see a ton of patients with low back pain. And, uh, you know, part of our um, strong mission, our primary mission, and I know that we 
uh, have pride in and, and, and try to improve every day is our diagnostic ability. And so for most patients, uh, I say that the majority of patients, when they come to our clinic and they leave, they leave with a diagnosis and we feel fairly confident in that diagnosis. That being said, we know that you know, there's a lot of factors coming in into play, uh, but you know, this um, treating those patients the way to the level that we would hope is not always uh, achieved. And you know, part of that may come into play that yes, this diagnosing someone who does have chronic uh, or acute or chronic low back pain is a very difficult uh, challenge. So, all that being said, yes, I, I do think that you know, 90% or or 99%. Uh, uh, incidence of non-specific low back pain is a little high, and I think that feeds into a little bit of what we wanted to discuss today. I think there's uh, kind of two main things that we wanted to get across. Number one, when a patient does come in with low back pain, what are our priorities? Uh, and we'll get to those in a second. And then number two, bringing up the idea that there are these other diagnoses potentially out there that we aren't necessarily uh, thinking about uh, and that may be why <coughs> there is such a high incidence of nonspecific low back pain. Just as you know, quick examples, some things that may be more controversial diagnoses, things like piriformis uh, syndrome, things like cluneal neuropathy, uh, these are diagnoses that uh, are not as common as uh, discogenic pain, radiculopathy, radiculitis, facetogenic pain, uh, but they, if you look at the studies that are specifically done for those uh, uh, processes, then you see that they are fairly common or under-recognized, at least based on uh, those studies that have been done. I think <clears throat> something that Dr. Hovez and I have kind of talk, talked about in the context of seeing these studies saying that there's a 90% incidence of non, non-specific low back pain for people presenting with low back pain, that's in stark contrast to some studies that you will see, for example, exploring sacroiliac joint dysfunction, because if you look at those studies, they'll document that up to 15 to 30% of patients who come in with low back pain uh, will be due to their sacroiliac joint dysfunction. So obviously there is a, a broad uh, a range of results um, out there in the literature and a lot of uh, conflicting information so it's clearly an area that we need to uh, continue to work on. Are you saying that 90% plus 30% doesn't add up? R- right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. um, yeah, I mean I think part of it obviously is the setting in which you're uh, seeing the patients, right? I mean most of those studies that looked at the that documented 15 to 30 percent for the sacroiliac joint or you know some of the studies that looked at uh, facetogenic uh, processes uh, are looking at patients presenting with you know chronic pain to uh, specialty care Um, and so I mean obviously it is a a very uh, different population than when we're thinking about patients presenting uh, to primary care offices Um, you know with low back pain being the number one reason why people present to for health care professional advice um, in America, it would seem as though, you know, uh, though, you know, obviously we do see quite a, a number of patients presenting to us. If it truly was, you know, 30% of people present with low back pain, which is, there are studies that say that is that, uh, that is, the incidence is that high, that obviously there has to be a, a large portion that do get seen by primary care, 
you know, treated um, and things get better before they have to make it to us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, there, there is a population that's there. Um, I guess to me, it's still kind of a, a, a large number and it kind of makes it hard to believe. But at the same time, you know, then you start thinking about, okay, you're, you have, say, people that get injured or hurt, right? You have occupational medicine clinics. Uh, I had a friend recently that, you know, uh, he was doing some work and uh, he lifted something, he hurt his back, and of course the first thing he does is he texts me and, you know, he goes in to see uh, his uh, occupational med doctor and, you know, within a day and a half he's got a diagnosis of uh, acute uh, lumbar strain to the quadratus lumborum. That's his, his official diagnosis, which is a diagnosis and it's not non-specific low back pain. Um, you know, but then if, you know, the, in my head, I'm like, okay, well, what do I actually consider a muscle strain? Uh, is, is it really likely that, you know, a guy who was doing his normal work, uh, not doing anything differently, not lifting anything heavier than he normally lifts, uh, in, you know, relatively decent shape is going to truly have, uh, an, an acute muscle strain to the quadratus lumborum. I mean, you know, I think that's a, a philosophical question that we're not necessarily asking at this point. Um, but there is this whole patient subset that, you know, he's never going to make it to see somebody like us, right? He's not, he's not going to end up seeing, likely end up seeing uh, a, an interventional physiatrist or a physiatrist of any kind. Um, he's going to go be in the Ahmed clinic. He's going to do some therapy and maybe some, uh, some other things. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, more than likely, he's going he's gonna to get better. And so there is that patient population. Right. Right. Um, and so, I don't know, that was a small little tangent, uh, to say that though I don't believe it, um, I'm trying to wrap my head around what, how those numbers can actually coexist. Right. Yeah. And I I think your, your points, the, the important one to take into consideration is that the settings in the clinics that these patients are ultimately being evaluated in is going to play a major role in, in those statistics ultimately. Um, so Getting back to kind of, as I mentioned, the two of the major things that we wanted to uh, uh, make sure we address today. Number one, when a patient does come in with back pain, I think one of the most important things, you know, whether that patient's in the primary care clinic or whether that patient is seeing a specialist uh, further on down the road, we always want to make sure that uh, we are ruling out more concerning uh, causes, um, obviously uh, including uh, malignancy and infection or fracture. And so <clears throat> um, I think one thing that's important to remember um, uh, when we are thinking about ruling out things uh, specifically, uh, including cancer, is that we have these red flags that we all learned in medical school and residency in terms of uh, back pain. Uh, but what's interesting is if you look at the sensitivity and specificity of these different uh, um, variables, including obviously, as we all know, uh, weight loss that's not explained, fevers that aren't explained, waking up in the middle of the night uh, due to the pain, night sweats, um, all these different red flags that uh, have been explored in the past, if you look at the data on them, it's a little bit uh, discouraging. Not to say by any stretch of the imagination that we shouldn't be using them. I absolutely do them on every uh, low back pain patient I see. But um, I think one of the take-home points, if you look at the studies that are out there, including the most recent uh, Cochrane review that was done on red flag signs and symptoms for low back pain, the one, uh, the one um, variable or the one predictor that they found that consistently should be utilized and and could predict whether or not 
uh, a patient was at risk for having cancer was a history of cancer. So um, that's something that I always do if a patient comes in with low back pain. And I don't assume that uh, it's already been asked to them. I don't assume that the, the workup or consideration has already been done. You know, I always ask them <laughs> about uh, fevers they can't explain, unintentional weight loss, waking up in the middle of night, night sweats, all of those things. Um, but then I always ask them, do you have a history of cancer? Uh, and if the answer is yes, then you want to know what the status of that is. Do they have surgery, chemo, radiation? Has it been monitored? Uh, or has it uh, has the patient not really had the follow-up day? Because that would be, you know, obviously a more uh, concerning thing. So I think that's something that if it is not already part of your repertoire is knowing their cancer history, especially if it's a, a tumor that we know um, uh, uh, like breast, kidney, lung, uh, that are going to be more likely to be metastasizing to the bone or to the spine. Um, but being aware of their cancer history, being aware of what the status of their uh, cancer is, if it uh, was present and um, uh, is, is being monitored or not. So, <clears throat> you know, that's one major thing is making sure we're not missing the things that we sh we absolutely should not be missing. That's that's one of the major things we wanted, you know, in this setting of nonspecific low back pain that we have such a difficult time diagnosing. That's what we don't want to miss, and we always want to be monitoring for. So making sure you check that uh, uh, personal history uh, of cancer. Yeah, and ju just for thoroughness, right? Also included in uh, those red flag symptoms, just making sure that you know we're talking to patients about progressive neurologic uh, compromise. Um, so you know, challenge difficulties walking. Um, difficulties with bowel and bladder, um, ever having uh, instances of, you know, waking up floridly wet or something along those lines, um, you know, because you know, sometimes, especially in a in, uh, slightly older demographic, um, some a lot of patients can just think that that's due to something else. Um, you know, I've seen a number of patients that, you know, have gone on for 20 years and they're like, oh yeah, by the way, my feet slap all over the place when I play tennis. Well, you catch your toe often? Yeah, I do. Well, that sure sounds like a foot drop. You never wanted to talk about to anybody about that? Oh, it never crossed my mind, right? Or, you know, the, the older lady, this also commonly happens. I'm sorry, I'm not singling out older ladies. But, you know, you have some, um, some urge incontinence or something along those lines. And so they don't truly think that it's not normal for them to wake up wet or something along those lines, right? And we've seen instances where that actually is something that is quite severe and does actually stem from their back. Yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> the other uh, major thing, you know, aside from making sure we don't miss those uh, red flag signs and symptoms with these patients coming in with uh, back pain, the other major thing I wanted to, uh, you know, talk about today is that, you know, that's, that's our goal. And I think any patient that does come in with back pain, we want to have the most accurate and the most, uh, you know, the most current uh, diagnosis possible for them. And so that's where uh, I guess one of the other major points I wanted to drive home today is that we, you know, should continue to keep our minds open to other potential diagnoses. I think, you know, uh, myself and Dr. Hovez, we do, you know, a lot of interventional procedures uh, with, you know, with the goal of improving patient's health and function quality of life. And obviously a lot of the procedures we do are targeting nerve roots, disc, and uh, joints. And so it's it's easy and we always have to um, strive to avoid um, putting people into those specific uh, categories because that's something we can treat you know whether 
because we we're very good at treating SI joint pain. We're very good at treating uh, nerve root issues and disc issues and uh, and joint issues. Um, but I think I think these studies that we've kind of brought up today it reminds us that we need to keep our mind open to the potential of other uh, diagnoses and um, always. Uh, being staying up and, and pushing ourselves clinically as well as staying up on the uh, research that's being done looking for other etiologies of, of low back pain yeah let's why don't we do this so if we're talking to the primary care provider that's seeing these patients and you know they see a lot of patients coming in with low back pain whether it's acute or chronic um, you know we've kind of gone over the red flag symptoms let's kind of talk through maybe the the early parts of that history the things that would make us say make our ears per- perk up a little bit more to things that are you know, things that have to be looked at a little bit more uh, intently or maybe uh, looked into a little bit further um, versus the things that might sound like they could be, you know, fall into this nonspecific role, but then we'll kind of break it down into maybe some of the things that we believe are actual, actually diagnosis that get clumped into this nonspecific role, right? Because obviously, like you said, and we've already talked about, you know, lumbar stenosis is fairly well uh, documented. Lumbar spondylosis or arthritis of those facet joints uh, is fairly well documented. I mean, even uh, facetogenic pain uh, secondary to things like whiplash are very well uh, documented. SI joint pathology, you know, disc uh, actually causing pain. Um, those are all things that you know, I think we've talked about, um, or if we haven't, we will talk about uh, further I- individually, uh, but people kind of understand those a little bit more. Uh, but there's a, a lot of other structures that are in and around the spine uh, that can be pain generators. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, I think a lot of those other things that aren't the ones that show up on step one exams uh, or your normal anatomy textbook uh, are the ones that people generally just classify into this kind of catch-all of nonspecific low back pain. Right. right. So patients come into primary care uh, doctors say, hey, doc, you know what? I was, you know, I was at work uh, the other day um, and, you know, I, for work, I, I walk 10 miles and I check meters, uh, water meters. Uh, and, you know, my back just started hurting me. It, it does this once every six months to a year. Um, you know, right now um, my pain is, is pretty debilitating. I can't go to work. What are the things that you're going to, the few questions that you're going to ask to say, okay, how, how aggressively do I need to start looking into things? You know, where, where are we going from here? Yeah. And so, you know, uh, I, for me, I'm always very systematic in terms of how do I approach the patient history. I know we all have our own. What I uh, specifically use is I use location, quality, radiation, severity, timing, accentuating, alleviating factors, and associated symptoms. Um, so those are the kind of things that run through my head real quickly. Sometimes the patient will give you some of that information right away. Um, uh, when they're initially telling you information, so you don't necessarily need to uh, repeat it. Um, but you know, for the specific example that uh, you uh, utilized, um, uh, number one, you know, I'd want to know uh, with the back pain that he's uh, reporting, is it traveling anywhere? Um, because you know, if it's uh, strictly axial low back pain versus pain that's going to be referring into the lower limbs, that's going to change my thought process uh, fairly immediately. Um, The other major things I'd be thinking about uh, are uh, the associated symptoms. So kind of what uh, Dr. Hovez and I uh, alluded to earlier, um, you know, uh, uh, back pain can either uh, look uh, fairly um, non uh, non concerning uh, versus it can start to really really raise some red flags uh, to you depending upon what the associated symptoms are. So, you know, we, we kind of already had brought it up 
but uh, you know, checking for associated weakness and, and numbness, especially if it's progressive bladder bowel, and then all those red flags that, that we talked about as well. And then things that really can make a big difference in terms of your differential diagnosis is the timing of uh, these things. So for, a, as, as a quick example, um, if the pain tends to be worse, you know, first thing in the morning when the patient's getting out of bed, but then it gets a little bit better as they start to move around and stretch, uh, that may be something that I'm leaning, especially given, depending upon the age demographic, I may be leaning a little bit more uh, towards joint pain because as we know, uh, joint pain tends to be worse after periods of immobility. Um, um, and then uh, also, uh, uh, as I said, you know, the, the things that are making it better and worse, those are also going to be critical uh, for our differential. Yeah. So yeah, exactly right. We rule out all those red flags. You know, pa patient doesn't have you know radiating pain. Um, making sure that there's nothing that sounds very alarming in terms of the way that they're presenting with it. Um, and so you know, we kind of already ran through kind of the general topics that most people would give a true quote unquote diagnosis for, right? Um, with those major structures in the spine. Um, but now we we kind of start thinking about okay, well, what are the other things that are there in the spine that can cause pain for people and and do commonly cause pain right i mean if you alluded to earlier uh piriformis uh piriformis being one of the external rotators uh of the of the hip um can you know that can cause pain um you know there are a couple of different theories on it one is that the muscle gets uh, tight and actually puts pressure on the sciatic nerve causing some pain locally and radiating um others are that it just truly it becomes a spasming muscle um and can focally uh give kind of buttock uh, region pain. Uh, you brought up cluneal uh, neuropathy. Um, maybe you can give us a little bit more introduction into what the heck is cluneal neuropathy. Is it have anything to do with George Clooney? No, no uh, unfortunately, no. But um, <laughs> but uh, cluneal, yeah, cluneal neuropathy. So the cluneal nerves, the two uh, major cluneal nerves that are thought to potentially play a role in low back pain are the superior and middle uh, cluneal nerves um, that are derived uh, from the thoracolumbar, uh, lower thoracic and, and uh, lumbar nerve roots uh, for, the, uh, for the superior cluneal nerve and then the sacral nerve roots for the middle cluneal nerve. And uh, th those cluneal nerves essentially run from uh, superomedial to inferolateral and they cross the iliac crest and they do provide uh, a large portion of the sensory innervation to the gluteal region, the buttock region, and the lumbar region. And so um, that, I think, that's where a lot of the interest comes in in terms of, okay, are, are these nerves, the entrapment of these nerves, are they playing a role in a lot of this uh, back pain that we're not able to diagnose, especially if the patient has pr had prior lumbosacral surgery and or a lot of trauma to the area because obviously in the setting of a prior surgery or in the setting of uh, trauma to that region, that's going to significantly increase the risk of uh, uh, adhesions or scar tissue formation, which are going to increase the risk of entrapment. Um, so not to you know delve deeply into the details of clinical neuropathy, but I think again, uh, you know, uh, just as, as we've been emphasizing to to continue to try to keep our minds open to these other potential uh, diagnoses um, that may uh, ultimately lead to a faster diagnosis and a more optimal treatment for these patients and potentially decrease the incidence of these cases turning into chronic low back pain cases, which we know uh, lead to a lot of, um, uh, you know, 
obviously most importantly stress and, de and debility for that patient, but then also uh, on our medical uh, system and our, uh, our, our nation as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think some of the other uh, anatomic things that we can think about when we are kind of using this catchphrase of axial nonspecific low back pain, right? I mean, obviously there are a lot of muscles uh, that are there. Uh, and the way that I always explain to patients is, uh, you know, muscles are just like anything else they can be and usually are some of the most painful uh, things that we can experience. Muscle spasms being, you know, something that, you know, I personally can tell patients like, look, when my back spasms, it hurts like the dickens i don't know i don't even know where that statement come from comes from but uh people say it so sorry <laughs> um but you know muscles can spasm and you know generally speaking weaker muscles tend to become more painful right they get overworked they you know and then our body's natural response uh when the muscles become overworked or the muscles are trying to compensate is that they're going to spasm they tighten up they want to protect them uh our anatomic structures uh and those muscle spasms can be really painful uh, other things that kind of come from the mus muscles, uh, you we alluded to, or, or not alluded to, we, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about enthesopathies, right? So enthesopathies uh, being uh, kind of where uh, you start having the connections of the muscles uh, to to bone towards bones, and where you can start to have a lot of kind of either chronic degeneration or even some sometimes uh, acute degenerations that uh, occur at, at, at different locations you enthesopathies are usually chronic but um, you know obviously you can you, you can acutely uh, injure any myotendinous uh, uh, structures as well um, a lot of the ligaments around the spine um, I've also seen as pain generators um, interspinous ligament being one that um, I mean, especially in traumatic situations, I think can can cause people a, a lot of discomfort. Uh, and quite honestly, it's something that nobody that hasn't seen it before is ever going to think about um, and, you know, is not going to show up on any imaging modality. Um, and, and, you know, I think that also kind of then plays into, you know, if it is, you know, nonspecific low back pain, how much does imaging play a role? Um, we've already talked about how imaging, generally speaking, even in back pain that does appear to have a, a good source uh, doesn't always have that great of a correlation to the patient's actual symptoms so obviously in non-specific low back pain you would uh, it'd be pretty easy to understand that you know the imaging is going to significantly less correlate to whatever the patient's going through um, I don't know anything that I haven't alluded to as of yet that you think is interesting uh, no I, I think that's uh, I think you know I think that's a good a, a good overall um, view of of the different uh, pain generators, and the and the key point being that there are so many different uh, pain generators in the low back area. The joints can cause issues. The the discs can cause issues. The nerves can cause issues. The muscles, the the tendons, the ligaments in the area. So there's so many different uh, causes of pain in the low back. You know our our goal and and what we're continuing to strive to do is, uh, like I said, have the most accurate and uh, the most uh, up up to date diagnosis um, for that patient, so that because you know that's going to make our treatments uh, for the patient that much more uh, effective. So you know, uh, not being satisfied with the initial diagnoses, uh, especially if we're not making progress for that patient and always keeping our mind open uh, to other potential. So basically, what we're saying is that study out of the Lancet was crap. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I, I think it's I think it's good to I think it's good to uh, to see those numbers um, and 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 recognize that we you know we still have a long way to go in terms of uh, you know determining 
you know what are the what what are the most common causes of low back pain and and uh, how can we continue to uh, uh, improve our diagnostic uh, tools um, to to get the most accurate diagnoses for these patients. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, ob- obviously, that was a tongue in cheek remark, um, but you know, I I think we both believe that there are many things uh, that are true pain generators that are anatomic structures that are uh, contributing to the patient symptoms uh, that get thrown into this basket of uh, quote unquote nonspecific low back pain, uh, and so. Um, you know, I think that there, there are a lot of different things to look at. I think there's a lot of structures just to be aware of. Um, you know, I think in a primary care setting, uh, I completely understand, you know, trying to tell somebody that they have clonial neuropathy uh, when they uh, pre- uh, present with back pain in the primary care setting is probably something that most people aren't going to be interested in explaining or talking about or, or probably even thinking about, but just being aware that there are so many different structures that are back there. There are a lot of different things that can contribute to these symptoms for the patients. Um, and, you know, hopefully as we get better and better at being able to treat them, there are going to be a lot more treatments available for each of these specific uh, ailments uh, for the patients. As well, as well as improved diagnostic criteria as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's all we got for today. Uh, as always, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, this podcast is meant for entertainment and information only. It is not meant to warrant medical advice. If you think any of this might pertain to you, please speak to your healthcare professional. Uh, otherwise, we'll see you guys next week. Later.